welcome to what is the final session um, of Isaac and Rebecca, Partners in Secession, a five-part series that we have been going through with Rabbi David Silver. Don't worry, uh, there will of course be more classes in the future. If not on this topic, then on other things I'm sure people will be interested in. It's just that of course next week we want to take a break to have our T-Ship of programming. We do have a full day planned. So if you have not looked at that yet, I highly encourage that if you know you might be interested in joining us online that day, look at the classes we have scheduled and register online. Otherwise, uh, if you would prefer to use your own Clemish, of course, feel free. I will put the sources up on the screen as we go through them. And Rabbi Silver, please take it away. Thank you. All right, so let's continue. Yes, of course, hopefully we will be continuing right, to see if we can get through the whole book of Breshit, uh, but we'll, we'll continue step by step. This is the last of the set of questions. Okay, so the <clears throat> we are in the middle here of the, uh, towards the end of the Avram narrative. So the, the, we drew a distinction between chapter 22, which is in one sense is the end of the Avram story, God's last communication, the second Lechacha, et cetera. And it, it addresses all that has come before. But the truth of the matter is that it doesn't actually end here. The Avram story continues in chapter 23, chapter 24, very long chapter. Even chapter part, first half of chapter 25 until Avram's death is mentioned in chapter 25. So we drew a distinction between chapter 22 on one hand and chapter 25 up through chapter 25 on the other. And the distinction is that chapter 22 is the choosing of Yitzchak, that is to say the confirmation that the blessing is, is covenantal blessing passes to Yitzchak. One might call it a, a transfer story, but there the transfer takes place in, in a kind of theoretical sense. Officially Yitzchak is clearly the designee, one might say the patriarchy in a sense has already passed to Yitzchak in chapter 22 of the Akedah. But then there's the question of in this world, how do we make this real? How do we deal with this idea in the real world? And that's chapters 23, 24, and part of 25, dealing with a different question. How does, how does it play out in, the, in this world? And in this world, 23, 24, 25, you deal with the world as it is. That is to say, the first story is about the purchase of the permanent grave, the possession of land, which is Sarah's grave. That's chapter 23. And it follows upon chapter 22, because the point of chapter 22, the transfer story to Yitzchak, is an affirmation one might say confirmation of the fact that Sarah was correct, not just that she was correct, but that actually the covenantal successor to Abraham is not just his child, but their child. So that's the, that's the implicit me message of chapter 22, among other things. That being the case, that Sarah is the full partner in passing on the covenantal blessing so the next thing Avram does is to affirm that. And the way it gets affirmed 
is in chapter 23. Chapter 23, he wants to acquire a symbolic piece of land. He wants to possess the land symbolically. Now, the truth of the matter is that in the case of Abraham, and Yaakov is no different, and David is no different, the land can be acquired in two different ways. The land can be acquired through conquest or symbolic conquest. That's one way to acquire the land. And the other way to acquire the land is more peaceful, which is to acquire it by means of purchase, for example. So Avram has symbolically conquered the land. That's chapter 14. That's the war of the four kings against the five, and more specifically, the war of Avram against the four kings, a symbolic conquest of the land. That's one way to lay claim to the land. And after Avram has laid, laid claim to the land in chapter 14, then God makes a covenant about this piece of land with Avram and Avram's descendants. So that's one way to possess the land. The other way to possess the land is to acquire it by means of purchase, and that's chapter 23. That Avram is buying a particular piece of land, and uh, the piece of land that he acquires, and he ends up acquiring not just a grave for Sarah, but a field as well. I think we had spoken briefly about that. It's not just the Ma'ara, but the Sadeh as well. He ends up with both. And I'll go revisit that for a moment. So that piece of land that Avram acquires is in fact Sarah's. It's in fact Sarah's, um, Sarah's grave, but Sarah's grave is in this piece of land. And here, the important point is that in chapter 23, uh, Avram is offered a grave for nothing. The beginning of chapter 23, the people, B'nai Chait, these are Canaanites, amongst whom Avram dwells, offer Avram a grave for nothing. They say to him explicitly, you're a prince amongst us. That's in verse number five, so bury your dead wherever you wish. Nobody will withhold a grave from you. So he's offered a grave for nothing. But Avram doesn't want a grave for nothing. He makes the point that he wants to pay. He says to them, if so, if you're willing to allow me to bury my deceased, so Shimonu Figuli be Ephron ben Sochar. Put me in touch with Ephron. So I know that he's a person Avram knows is be anxious to make a deal. So he has a grave at the edge of this field. I will pay a full price. The Hebrew is kesef mole, the full price. Full price, we have the same expression in English. I'll pay you the full price. Amongst, in your midst, and here we have the word that already appears twice in the beginning of chapter 23. The phrase is achuzat kever, not kever. Kever he gets for nothing. He doesn't want it for nothing. He wants something else, which is achuzat kever, a possession of a grave. The word achuzah, of course, means lechoz is to grab. And achuzah, stay achuzah, in the book of Ayikra, chapter 25, is a piece of land that you fully possess. To the extent that we can own land, that land is called Ste'achuza. So Abram says, 
I want an achuzat kever. He said it actually earlier in verse number, uh, verse number four, tenuli achuzat kever imachem. And he says it again in this verse, in verse number nine, betochachem laachuzat kever. So he wants achuzat kever. He wants, this is the, the symbolic possession of the land in the book of Breshit. And this actually is Sarah's grave. It's true that it will become a grave site for not just Sarah, Avram, Yitzchak, Rivka, Yaakov, and Leah, but it starts off as Sarah's Achuza. So Sarah is the one, Sarah represents acquisition of the land. And it's actually interesting that this is in Hebron. He comes to Hebron, he wants to make a deal in Hebron. And if we think about the Avram story, where he travels. You enter the land in Shechem, and then he travels next to Beit El, that's the second stop. And then the end of chapter 13, after he returns from Egypt, he goes first to Beit El, and God instructs him to keep traveling, and he goes to Hebron. And in point of fact, this pattern of Shechem, Beit El, and Hebron is true not only in the case of Abraham, but actually in the case of Yaakov. When Yaakov returns to the land from the house of Laban, goes to Shechem, and then to Beit El, and then he ends up going to see his father in Hebron. So what Hebron represents then, if Shechem represents entering the land, the first point of contact with the land, so what Hebron represents being the third stop is a fuller possession of the land. So it makes perfect sense that the Achuza, stay Achuza, would be in, in, the, in, the, in Hebron. So this is acquisition in the land by means of purchase. And this idea that there are two different ways to possess the land, one is by means of conquest and the other by means of purchase, reappears for us, of course, later on in this book, at the end of chapter 33, beginning of chap and chapter 34, that's the story of Shechem. The story of Shechem, in chapter 34, the brothers uh, kill the people of Shechem and they uh, take the booty from Shechem, etc. And that's a kind of symbolic conquest of the land. What Shechem represents in the book of Breshit, hope we get there together sometime in the future, not too distant. Shechem is actually a possession of the land, a symbolic possession of the land. And it's the point of entry. That's what Shechem is. So it, it's, it's a demonstration that Israel or the descendants will possess the land. That's chapter 34. But the truth of the matter is that the end of chapter 33, the very end of chapter 33, after Yaakov returns, comes back, Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Yishchem. That's in chapter 33, verse number, find the verse, verse number um, 18, 18 and 19. Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Yishchem, Asher Be'eretz Kenan, Vivaomi Padana Ram, Vayicha Lepnei Ha'ir. So he encamps, before the city, he buys a piece of a field. He purchases the field for a hundred ksita. I can't tell you if it's a good price or a bad price. I know that Avram pays a fortune for the field that he buys, but ksita, I can't answer you. I don't know. He builds an altar there and he cries out to the God of Israel. So there we have back to back two stories about Shechem. In the first instance, it's Yaakov's purchase of Shechem, laying claim symbolically to the land. 
In the second story that follows immediately thereafter, it's the brothers, Dina's brothers' war against Shem, not just the person, but the town, which results in the conquest of the land. The fact that the two stories are back to back suggests to us that Yaakov much prefers to lay claim to the land by means of purchase as opposed to war. We'll get to the Shem story, we'll talk about that. But these are two different ways to possess the land. Now, the truth of the matter is that another place where we have, and the parallel, we discussed this, the parallel to the story of the uh, Akeda and then the purchase of Marata Machpelah is the last chapter of the book of Shmuel. In the last chapter of Shmuel, as we have discussed, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but we discussed that in that chapter, the uh, where David takes the census. So the first part of the chapter is how David atones for the mistake of taking the census and in doing so uh, is in effect uh, told that the city of David, which is also God's city, represents the fact that David will have a permanent kingship in the city of David, which is Jerusalem in the last chapter of Shmuel. But then after he's told that in effect, and the plague is stops and all that, it's stopping or will stop. He's told to go to these, to Aravna Hayavusi. Aravna Hayavusi, the city of Jerusalem is called Yavus. It's the one city that's not yet captured actually. So David will possess the city of Jerusalem. He already possessed it by means of war. That's chapter five of second Samuel. But now he's going to purchase the place of the temple, the place of Aravna, Aron, the place of Mr. R. And he goes to Aravna at the very end, and Aravna says, why are you here? Says David, to purchase the threshing place and to bring sacrifices to stop the plague. And Aravna says to David, take it for nothing. It's all yours. Take the threshing floor, take the animals. You can have the wood for the sacrifice. It's all yours. And David says to him at the end of the book, I'm not taking it for nothing. I'm not bringing up sacrifices that I don't pay for. And David purchases the threshing floor of Aravna. So that's the parallel actually. It's exactly the same story. He's offered it for nothing. It's the story of Avram in chapter 23, bury your deceased wherever you want, we'll give you a grave. He doesn't want to be given a grave because he doesn't want the grave actually. He wants the grave. But he wants in his words, Achuzat Keber. It appears twice, it, both in verse number four and in verse number nine. And of course, it also appears in the very last verse of the story, which is verse number 20 of chapter 23. After Avram purchases the field and the grave, Avram acquired it as Achuzat Keber as the possession, achuza. So three times we have the term achuzat kever, and not only that, it's the concluding words of the story. So Avram has succeeded in acquiring a symbolic possession of the land. It's interesting, of course, that Avram had only expressed interest in purchasing the grave. He makes it very explicit. I want to buy the grave at the edge of his field, right? he says, at the edge of the field. When he meets Ephron, Ephron offers him both the field and the grave. 
In fact, he says, you can buy the field and the grave that's in it. But Avram didn't want to buy the field and the grave that's in it. He wanted to buy the grave alone, which is at the edge of the field, which means to separate the field from the grave. That was his thinking. You keep your field. At the edge, there's a, 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 you know, a grave. There's a, a, a cemetery, grave, whatever it is. And I'll, I'll take that. You keep the field. But Ephron says to him, no, no, I'll give you both. I'll give you the field and the grave which is in it. Which means, in effect, you can't have just the grave alone. I'll give you both. But of course, he knows that Avram has already made it clear. He wants to pay. He says, Bekesef Mole. Says Avram, we have a deal. And then Ephron says, you know, between me and you, what's 400 shekel kesef, which is a huge amount of money. You know, what's $100 million between friends, you know, that kind of thing. And most of the money presumably is going for the field. It's not going for the cave. Cave is probably inexpensive. It's the edge of the field, but the field is expensive. And it's a field that has all kinds of things. It has trees in it. It's a field. Stay Ephron. But Avram has a purpose over here. Avram wants to possess something which represents an acquisition in the land. So Avram, no problem. He gives him 400 shekel kesef, the best kind of currency over here. That's the story over here. Okay, so that's, a, that's number one. Now I wanted to add something else over here in terms of the relationship between the two stories. In the book of Shmuel, last chapter of Shmuel, so the two, those two stories come together. In other words, the first story is about David's census. The angel hovers above Jerusalem to destroy it. God says to the angel, hold back your hand. The Malach has stretched out his hand to destroy, which of course is exactly parallel to the Akedah. And then in the book of Shmuel, that very place itself, the place that the angel was above was the threshing floor of Aravna. It says that God had told the angel, hold back your hand. So that place is a place which is a demonstration of God's mercies or God's willingness to relent. And that's the very place that David is sent to. David sees the angel there. And that's the place that David is sent to to purchase. So the purchase of the place, the purchase of the place, and the, um, and the place itself are the same place. They're, they're identical places. That is different than what we have here in our book in Breshit. It's different. Because in Breshit, the sacred place is the Paramoria, it's Mount Moriah, it's the place of the sacrifice. The second story about the purchase of the gravesite is not that place. He doesn't buy Har Moriah, he's not purchasing that place. He purchases a totally different place, not in Eretz Moriah, he's in Hebron. And it's not the place of sacrifice, it's the place where Sarah will be buried, stay Ephraim. So it is different in that sense. What is very interesting is that in the Zohar, something interesting in the Zohar here, the Zohar has a very long section on Maratha Machpelah. And it's interesting how the Zohar works. The Zohar, of course, uses many Midrashim. They may have their own traditions as well, and they add a lot of things. But they also play off the Midrash very often. 
often they rework the Midrash, etc. So the Zohar has Avram going into this Marata Machpelah, and whom does Avram encounter there other than Adam and Chava? He encounters Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, in this particular place. And without getting into the details of it, now, of course, the Midrash already, before the Zohar, the Midrash already picks up on this idea of Marata Machpelah as the place where not only Avram and Sarah are buried, and Yitzhak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah, but the Midrash says, and Adam, Adam and Eve were also buried there. They're picking up on the place, which is called Kiryat Arba, the place of the four. Who are the four? We know of three couples that are buried there. Avram, Sarah, Yitzhak, Rivka, Yaakov, Leah. So where's the fourth couple? So the fourth couple is Adam and Eve. So now the question is, what is this all about? For the Zohar, this Marat HaMachpelah essentially is either Gan, I don't remember if it's Gan Eden itself or the gateway to Eden, one or the other. For our purposes, it doesn't matter. And I think what the Zohar is picking up actually, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, but what the Zohar is picking up is something that we had discussed um, last week, two weeks ago, whatever. And that is that the one of the important points in conjunction with Akedat Yitzchak is that Akedat Yitzchak is when Avram actually, after all his wanderings, uncovers, discovers, uncovers the place that God chooses. The Akedat is the place that God chooses. And the place that God chooses is the alternative in the book of Breshit to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the first place that God chooses from which the human is banished, and then begins the search for the alternative to Eden, of which there are two. One is the land of Canaan, and the second is the sacred space within Canaan, which in our book is Haram which later is the Mishkan and the Mikdash, the sacred spaces. So in effect, actually, if you think about it, given our discussion, Haram essentially is the replacement of Gan Eden. The Zohar is seeing Maratha Machpelah as, as a kind of Ghanaian as well. So what the Zohar is doing in effect is linking these two stories in a very profound way. And actually, through the lens of the Zohar, it is basically very parallel to what we have in the Book of Shmuel. In the Book of Shmuel, there are two different places. The place that he buys is Goran Aravna is the place of the Ark. The Ark has found its permanent place. And, uh, and David buys that place. So over here, though, these are two different places, but they have something in common, as the Zohar suggests. They have something in common that essentially the land being the correct alternative to the Garden of Eden. And in point of fact, you have, so you have Adam and Chavu represent the first Gan Eden. Then you have the covenantal trio, or the Avot Imahot, who represent the acquisition of the alternative to Eden. And those two stories are bound together. Whether the Zohar is understanding this in terms of the Pshat of the Chumash, I couldn't answer you. 
I have no idea. It's possible that Zohar does, but in any effect, whether they do or they don't, is not my point. My point is that, that we do. So there's something about this, and it's interesting in terms of the Shmuel story. Just wanted to add that little detail. In general, I would say, you know, I've co-taught some Zohar for the last couple of years with Professor Berman, Daniel Berman. He does the Zohar, that's his thing. And my interest is something different, which is, what did the Zohar think the Peshat is? It's very interesting. How is the Zohar understanding that before you jump off in a hundred directions, what is the Peshat? So that's interesting. That's through the lens of the Zohar sometimes, you can see Peshat. It's, it's, sometimes it's easy to see the Peshat and the Zohar picks up on many interesting things. Anyway, I wanted to add that little, little detail. Okay, let me stop here and take comments or questions. And then we'll jump into as far as we can get today to continue with um, to continue with other elements of the album. So we're not going to finish it. But we'll, we will jump in. Does anybody have any comments or questions? I'll take them now. Or in the chat. No, if anything's in the chat, I'll take it. And if not, we'll just continue. Feel free to unmute yourself or raise your hand if you would like some help with that. I had uh, maybe something that I saw that um, it's interesting that he's standing in the face of, his, of the dead and uh, this, uh, this idea of face comes in chapter four all the time with Havel and Kain. So I was, I don't know, I just had this idea that maybe it is also like the ending of the story that is opened with Abel and Cain. Like, um, instead of um, escaping from the face of God and the earth, that you're able to stand in the face of death or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. In other words, I think, well, I think that is, yeah, let me, let me say the following, that the, I thought, I alluded to this last time, I don't remember, it was two weeks ago, but I'm teaching in different places. I can never remember what I said where, but the point that I made about Gan Eden, why this is a alternative, to, why this is the correct alternative to Gan Eden, is that the reason we get thrown out of Gan Eden in the first place is because God says that the human being may think that the human is actually God. They've already taken from the tree of knowledge, lest they take from the tree of life, Right? They may take from the tree of life, we are highly Olam. And therefore, penya and penyishlach yado, as they stretch out their hand and take, which they shouldn't take. And therefore, and God sent out the human from the Garden of Eden. With Abraham, it's Altishlach Anar. And the point is that with Abraham, when does Abraham get the covenantal blessing? When is it confirmed? It's confirmed at the moment that Avram is willing to acknowledge his own finiteness, his own mortality. Because if in fact he sacrifices Isaac, he has no future. There is nobody else. Ishmael's gone, he's not covenantal. So the willingness to accept his finality is what allows one to enter into a covenant with God. Because that's an understanding at the end of the day, that's perhaps the primary distinction between God and humans. God is infinite, humans are not. The willingness to accept that is an acknowledgement, I'm not God. If you acknowledge you're not God, you can then enter into a relationship with God. 
So the point then is that that's exactly the point, and that's the connection to the Garden of Garden of Eden. So it probably is important to say that it is it's interesting in terms of stay Ephron. I would say the following. Uh, I would say that Abraham wanted to buy a grave as a permanent possession. At the end of the day, he ends up not just with the grave. At the end of the day, he ends up with a field. The field with trees in it, no less. Field with trees, another Gan Eden, right? What marks Gan Eden is the trees. All the trees, the one particular tree, the two particular trees. At the end of the day, he only wanted a grave, but he ends up purchasing, and he has no problem paying the money either. And the field is certified as his by Yakama Sodeh, right? And, 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 the, and the cave which is in it. So the point is that perhaps when you're saying something which is connected, which is namely, it's the very acceptance of death actually, which allows Abraham to enter into this, and Sarah of course, to enter into this permanent relationship with God. And that is reflected in something else that I believe I mentioned, and if I didn't mention, I'll mention again. And that is that the word achuzat kever, everything begins with the language. Achuzat kever appears three times in the story, and not just that, it's the last verse. And that's what Avram says, it's his first statement and his last and the last verse. I want achuzat kever, he got achuzat kever. He got more than that, he got actually a field. He gets both. Because at the end of the day, you acquire, you acquire everything you can acquire, the achusa, the world which lives, only if you are willing to admit to the fact that you're limited. A human being is a limited being. Human is not God, which is the acceptance of one's finitude, finality. What can you, that's, that's to be human. And, and the achusa is also the same root as achusa. Just one second. Oh, yeah. One second. But there's something else additional to that, which is that when Avram speaks to Bnei Chet, I believe I mentioned this, he, he starts his speech with the words, I am a stranger, Ger, with you. Give me a chuzat kever. A Ger means of someone who's, who's, who's not permanent. A Ger is a temporary resident. And what's interesting is that expression, Ger v'toshav, has a parallel expression in chapter 25 of Vayikra, where God says in chapter 25 of Vayikra, in the context of the sabbatical year and the, and the jubilee year, Gerim v'toshavim, you can't sell the land forever. The land reverts back in the jubilee year. And the God says, why? Ki gerim v'toshavim atemimodi. You are strangers and sojourners with me. It's not your land, it's my land. And the next verse is, after God says, it's not yours, you're really strangers, Gerim, temporary residents. The next verse in Vayikra, in the land of your achuza, in the land of your possession, bring redemption to the land by the willingness to give up the land, by the acceptance of the fact you can't sell it forever because it's not yours. And there in Vayikra, you have exactly these same two expressions. On one hand, Gervitoshav, on the other hand, Achuza. So that I think is what's going on in the story over here and why this is an appropriate replacement for the Garden of Eden in the story of Maratamach Peyuah. And of course, the Akedah most certainly is the chosen place. We have discovered, that's Abraham's mission, to discover the chosen place as I've spoken late. So the point is well taken in terms of the, 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 the grave 
and the and the, and the possession. Stay from is the main field, but it has within, within it has a kever. It has a chuzat kever. So there's that consciousness that we are in a sense temporary residents. Yes, Robin, what did you want to add? Yeah, just uh, research that uh, uh, that Achad Bakarne, uh, like the the oil which is taken by the uh, by his horns, is the same root. Uh, it's also like this taking. It's a, I just checked it, so it's I found it interesting that it was the same root that taking possession. But in the in the oil, it's God who is taking possession of the oil. So um, I don't know. I just found it interesting. Well, what's like, which is the other word, taking possession? And what's the other? You said it relates to it at the same root as what? Nechaz. Oh, yes, Nechaz Vasvach Mikadav. Good point. That's a very good point. That's an excellent point. I didn't think of that. That's a very good point, which is another linguistic link between the two stories. Very good point. Always something new. Very good point. Nechaz Vasvach Mikadav. Yes, excellent. Thank you for I that. wanted to ask, um, very often in that whole exchange, Lu Shima'eni, the Shorashin Mem Ayin comes up again and again. Yes. Um, is there anything you want to say on that? It's, it was very striking to me. You're very correct. It's back and forth, back and forth. I mean, it is, you have to remember that the verb Lushmoa came up very significantly in terms of Sarah, right? In chapter 16, and then God's directed okay. in chapter 21, so right. it could be a uh, confirmation of what I said earlier that Abraham's purchase of the grave for Sarah, not just grave, but the permanent possession that Sarah is, is a way that Avram is essentially acknowledging the fact that she was right, that he didn't understand how the covenant proceeds left to his own devices, he would have made some terrible mistakes, and that she corrected him, which of course leads us actually to the next story, because the next story is about finding a wife for Yitzchak, and the point is obviously, if Abraham needed Sarah to direct him as how the covenant proceeds, then conceivably Yitzchak will need a partner to direct him how the covenant proceeds, and that is certainly true. Sure. That's the story of chapter 27. Which right. we, let's call that the second transfer story. What's very critical to understand, of course, we're not going to get there now, but we will get there in the future. I've been doing a lot of thinking about it. Some of this stuff is, is terrifically interesting. Um, that actually, this, it is, the two stories are, are deeply connected to each other. So in other words, what Avram understands after the Akeda is she was right. And we have to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to, how to acknowledge that on one hand, also had a plan for the future. Now, the point is, the Chumash is not a romantic book. I mean, there is a different kind of romance to it. But it's not about, you know, the relationship of Abraham and Sarah, which is anybody who reads the Chumash, I think, with two eyes and without preconceptions understands that we got here a problematic situation. If a man can say about his wife, she's my sister, about whom God has told him, she will bear your one and only covenantal child. And three chapters later, he saunters into the land of Abimelech for unknown reasons and says to the whole world, meet my sister, we got a problem. Not only that, after the fact, why did you lie to me? She really is my sister. So obviously we got deep problems here, but that's not the point. I mean, and the Medrash, and 
frankly, at the Akedah itself, Sarah is completely not mentioned with the Akedah. The Midrashim may mention it, but at the end of the day, the Akedah, Akedah Yitzchak, which is about Abraham, doesn't mention Sarah one way or the other. All kinds of Midrashim, when she finds out she died, the truth of the matter is, just to make a simple point, and Isaac must have been 37 years old because she dies at 127 and she gave birth at 90 and all this other business. It so it doesn't sound like at the arcade that Isaac is 37, that's for sure. But the point is, I would say, it's not that Sarah died as a consequence of the arcade. I would formulate it differently in the Pshat. I think that Sarah can die as a consequence of the arcade. Once you have the arcade, Isaac has essentially replaced Abraham, symbolically replaced Abraham. And then Sarah's mission in terms of the mission to ensure the, the future, she has in fact fulfilled her purpose. Once you have the Akeda, then Sarah no longer, her mission, mission accomplished. And in the Bible often when mission is accomplished is when you leave this world. It's true of Moshe Rabbeinu too. You did, you did what you had to do, you brought them to the space, can I cross over? No. And not only that, please don't talk to me, says God. I've heard enough from you, maybe 40 years. You know, I have a lot of patience when you talk about them, but less when you talk about yourself. But you did, you, you're God's servant. You did what you're supposed to do, and that's it. So no one can do everything. So, they, so it's interesting. So I would say that, not that she dies in the shot as a consequence of it, but rather she can die as a consequence of it. She can die. Let me just come to a different point about, um, about the Akedah, um, which is the following. Just to go back again to this point, I call the Akedah a transfer story. It is a transfer story. Through the Akedah, we know that Yitzchak is the one and only covenantal child, and that the covenant has passed from Avram to Yitzchak, made possible by the sacrificial substitution for Yitzchak, which is the Ayah. What's interesting about the Akedah, I mean, what isn't interesting about the Akedah, but what's interesting about the Akedah, among many other things, is actually verse number 19. Verse number 19, chapter 22, the end of the Akedah, it says, Vayoshev Avraham el Norav, after the promise, the, the promises made to Avram earlier, are, are reaffirmed towards the end of the Akedah. The angel calls down a second time. And God takes, God says, I swear, God says, Be nishbati God swears by God. You take a shmua, you take an oath in God's name. Here, God takes an oath in God's name. Be nishbati Because you did this, you, you, you and your descendants will be blessed, like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the seashore. These blessings we encountered earlier. Here they once again reconfirmed at the end of the Akedah. There we have the Shamata again, by the way, uh, Debbie. We have again the So again, another Shamata. Because you hearken to my voice, I would say hearkening to God's voice. In the case of Sarah, it was also hearkening to Sarah's voice. God said, So she speaks in my name, she speaks correctly. That's the ending. And the next verse is very striking. So 
So Abraham returned to the, remember the two lads who were there with the donkey? Shvuach and Paul Machamar. Abraham said, me and the boy will go yonder, bow down and return to you. Over here in verse number 19, it's, it's curious that the Torah doesn't say that they returned to the two lads. The Torah says he returned by Yoshev Abraham. One could say, since he's the focus of the story, it mentions Abraham specifically, but Isaac also went. But it is striking and it doesn't mention Isaac. And more than that, actually, it's something else additionally very striking, which suggests to me that Isaac's not going in a sense. And that is that other word here in verse number 19 that appeared twice earlier, namely the word Yachdav. By Yechush Lehem Yachdav appears twice with Yitzhak and Abraham earlier. So it's actually remarkable. By Yakumu by Yechu Yachdav, Yachdav earlier was there to reinforce the bond between the father and the son, between Abraham and Isaac, this covenantal son, the one to whom the covenantal blessing will pass. So what does it mean to say, they went yachdav? So I would suggest that actually what the verse is saying is that at this point in time, because Beersheba is both in the land and outside the land, as we saw, and that actually Isaac doesn't go to Beersheba. Uh, not this Beersheba, but in the story over here, by, by saying Abraham returned and went with the two boys, and the two boys earlier are the two boys that don't go farther. They say Po. Isaac goes Ko, and they say Po. And what the Chumash is intimating here is that in some symbolic sense, Abraham has already been, has already been replaced. Abraham can go off any place he wants now. He can go to Beersheba, he can go with the two lads, he can marry Keturah later, six kids, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But in terms of the covenant, in some, in some symbolic, theoretical sense, Isaac has been chosen. It's already, it's a transfer story and the transfer has taken place. That's one, that's my main uh, line here in terms of approaching this. One could also say something else, that the failure to mention Isaac, whether we went or not, is, is for the reader, is for us to reflect further on that how close we came, or Isaac came, to being sacrificed. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Whatever he believes is going to happen, it's going to be for the best, but he was willing. He stretched out his hand to take the knife to slaughter his son. It does say that. And from a psychological standpoint, without engaging in too much psychology, we can easily understand that from a certain perspective, Yitzchak is sacrificed. I don't mean he's actually physically sacrificed, although some Drashim claim that too, but, but psychologically, it's not an accident that the second blessing of the Amida, which is the blessing of the resurrection, is actually Isaac's blessing. You know, the three blessings, the first is Abraham, second is Isaac, third is Jacob. I plan to teach that stuff in the fall with all kinds of interesting things. One of my better courses, I believe. Uh, should be fascinating stuff. It's not an accident that the resurrection blessing is Yitzchak. Because psychologically, he is resurrected. Psychologically, he dies. That's the idea of the Akeda. And I don't mean he actually dies, but from a psychological standpoint, he actually dies. So here, it could be that as well, that the text is suggesting, having us reflect on the fact that he could have been sacrificed. Were he sacrificed, he would not have returned. 
So the text suggests that. Having said that, having said that, that in a sense, Isaac replaces Abraham at the Akedah in a symbolic way, but then chapters 23 and 24 and 25, they deal with the, with the, with the, with the, with the world as it is, with, with the reality of the world. So until Isaac, when can Isaac actually replace Abraham in the context of chapters 23 and 24? He can only replace Abraham when in fact he finds Rebecca. Because without Rebecca, from a practical standpoint, the blessing's not gonna work. Because Isaac, even more than his father, will certainly not be able to understand how the blessing proceeds. Now, if one understands the Chumash that way, there are other ways to read the Chumash, but I think what I suggested is the most plausible reading of the Chumash. It is very striking in chapter 24, and we're not gonna get there today, but I'll make, make one point about chapter 24. We'll start chapter 24 in a couple of minutes. Abraham uh, sends his servant to find a wife for, for Isaac. This is chapter 24. Sends his servant, his most trusted servant. And the servant, who's quite good actually, uh, sets up a test to find the appropriate uh, wife for Yitzchak. And that's the story of Rivka. And then he accompanies Rivka back to her house and he has to sell the family on the idea that Rivka should marry Yitzchak. So he comes back and he has to convince them to let their young, very young daughter leave home and travel with him to a distant land. How he does that is a whole story and we'll study that hopefully in the future. In any event, they, he says that when he got to the house, they invite him in and they give him to eat. They place food before him. By Yusam Lefanov Rechos, is chapter 24, Verse number, um, verse number, where is this over here? Verse number 30, I think it's 33. I don't want to eat, I got to, let me talk before I eat, he says. I don't want to eat. We have to, we have to talk first. I will discuss why, but we have to talk first. And he said, Evid Avraham Anochi. Let me tell you who I am. I'm Abraham's servant. It's very interesting that the Midrashim think this is Eliezer in charge of the household, and maybe it is Eliezer. But literally, it's certainly not Eliezer. The name is never mentioned. He is exactly who he says he is, which is, I am Abraham's servant. He's the Evid. He's there to do Abraham's bidding throughout. That's who he is. That's who I am, he says. I'm Abraham's servant. Then he tells the story. God blessed my master very much, and he grew, and God gave him all kinds of things. And the next verse, And the wife of my master, Sarah, gave birth to a child for my master after she was very old, and Abraham gave him all his possessions. And my master made me swear, etc. Right? And I said to Adoni in verse 39, maybe the woman won't go. And he says, don't worry about that. She, if she doesn't go, it's to forget about it. She will go, fine. I came down to the well in verse 42 and I prayed to the God, the God of Elohei Adoni Abraham, the God of my master Abraham, okay? And uh, tells the whole story. He retells the story, he changes many things. 
And at the end of it, verse number 48, I bow down and I bless the God, Hashem Elohei Adoni Abraham, the God of my master Abraham, who set me on the right path, right? And then the Lavan uh, uh, and Betuel say, obviously this is from God, what can we say? You can uh, take Rivka and go. Then they begin to shift around afterwards and then maybe not, he says, don't try to storm me, he says in verse 56, send me, let me be sent to my, to my master. What's the point here? In the entire long chapter, he calls Abraham Adoni innumerable times. I didn't count them up. It's a lot. Sarah is Eshet Adoni. Isaac is Ben, ben Adoni, right? That's the story. Isaac is the son of the master. Sarah is the wife of the master. And Abraham over and over and over again is the master and the God is the God of my master Abraham. Fine. At the end of the day, they send Isaac with, 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 with uh, they send the servant with Rivka. They come to the end of the chapter and they're returning home. Isaac went out to the field to converse in the field. He sees camels coming. And in verse number 64, Rivka lifts up her eyes and she sees something in the field a man walking towards them. And she says to this, she falls off the camel, she lights on the camel. And she says to the servant in verse 65, who's the man coming towards us? This is my master. And she puts a veil on herself. The servant should have said, the son of my master, the son of my master. That's a, the master throughout the entire long chapter, longest chapter in Genesis. The master is Abraham. What does it mean to say, this is my master? And not only that, the very next verse, and the servant reported to Isaac all that had happened. He shouldn't report to Isaac. Isaac didn't send him. You report back to the one who sent you. So the servant should report back to Abraham, obviously. So what does it mean? It means very simply, Abraham is retired. Patriarch Emeritus. He's not the master anymore. There's a new master here. Isaac has replaced Abraham. And when? The moment that Rivka meets him. The moment Rivka meets him. Here's my point. That the two stories actually, the Akedah on one hand and the marriage to Rivka on the other, those are two parallel stories. The first is about the symbolic succession of Isaac. Isaac replaces Abraham. Abraham goes off of the lads, Yachdav with them, Isaac not. But over here in the, in the real world, when he finds Rebecca, Isaac has replaced Abraham. And not just that, by the way. There's actually something else interesting as well, which is the last verse. So after the servant reports back to Isaac, not to Abraham, in the last verse of chapter 24, he brings Rebecca to Sarah's tent. He took her, she was, she was his wife. And, and Isaac loved her. And thus did Isaac find comfort after the death of his mother. So what you have over here actually, one might say, yes, it speaks of Isaac's deep connection to his mother his love for his mother and his love for this woman whom he brings into Sarah's tent. 
So the same way Isaac has replaced Abraham, Rivka has replaced Sarah, but one might say even more than that. One might suggest here, the story of Parshat Chayi Sarah begins with Abraham mourning, crying, eulogizing, the spold of the Sarah, the Rivka Two terms that we identify with mourning. But here's another term, which is Nechamu, which is Nichum, Nichum Avelim. Isaac is consoled when we find a replacement for Sarah. And up until this point, in other words, up until one might say in the broader scheme of things, up until you find Rivka, you can't, we the reader can't be fully happy with the story because who's gonna replace Sarah? If Sarah was, was essential to understanding how the covenant proceeds and Abraham would make a mistake, we have no reason to assume that Yitzchak, his sheltered son, would do any better. And now the answer to our problems is in the form of Rivka, who Isaac replaces Abraham, Rivka replaces Sarah. Okay, now let me take any comments or questions and then we will start with a new, uh, something new. I mean, that's not new, it's a, it's a continuation. We're not gonna finish it, but at least we'll start it. Yochevet, yes. Yes? So, I, yeah, okay. Um, this is kind of, I guess, an aside, but we've also been told very clearly that Eliezer won't inherit, that it has to be uh, Sarah and Abraham's son. Right. If we go with the Midrash that this servant is Eliezer, it's interesting that all the way through this story, he keeps saying, the God of my, of my Lord, of, of Abraham. Right. He doesn't say my God. And that uh, here it's very clear that he is not the right one for the covenant because he's not the one uh, who is tied to Hashem. It's, it's, well, that, I don't know about that, that part of it. Look, Abraham's servant is great because it was telling the story. Because on one hand, he understands what Abraham. He, Abraham tells him straight out what he wants. We get, we get there. Abraham's very clear about what he wants. Can't be more clear. And the, but the point of the story is that throughout, from beginning to end, one gets the impression, even though the servant has complete latitude, that Abraham says, "Here's what you got to accomplish." I don't care how you do it, he says, but here's, a, here's what you got to accomplish. And he trusts this fellow who understands perfectly what Abraham wants. He's a, he's a servant. He, he's going to do the will of his master. But his master never told him, how do you find such a person? I want to, Abraham said one thing, the correct person is, is a, a woman who's willing to leave her home and follow you into parts unknown. That's the right mm -hmm. person. And Abraham says the same way I left my home. The correct person is like me. She will be willing to leave her home to make that choice and to leave, which is what happens in the story. At the end of the day, it's her decision. The family says, ask her what to do. They don't want to let her go. Ask her. Eleich, one word, I'll go. But how do you find this person? So Abraham doesn't say how to find the person. And the servant is on his own. So the servant is the perfect, what is the person, the perfect person. Because if you have a vision, what you want is an assistant who understands the vision perfectly, which is not easy to understand. And then says, I'm going to make this thing happen and has the ability to make it happen, which is a different set of gifts. How do you make it happen? How do you deal with the lovings of the world? And the servant knows how to do it. Now, as far as the servant not saying, my God, 
Okay, that's true. Because the servant is not, the servant has no, in the story, it's interesting, the servant is, has enormous latitude what to do. But the servant always, if you ask the servant, who are you? It's very striking that he has no name. He says who he is, Ebed Abraham Anofi. And I would add, by the way, in conjunction with your mentioning the prayer, that when the servant prays to, to God, the servant prays to the God of Abraham, his master. That's how the servant prays. At the end of it, he bows down and he thanks God for answering his prayer, right? He prays, do kindness with Abraham. Well, actually, that's our prayer, isn't it? Isn't that what we do every three times a day? And we say it's our God too, that's true. But the focus in the Amida, which I'll be teaching next year, I hope, that stuff will be, I mentioned, very interesting. But that's our prayer. The Zocher Chasdei Avot, who may be Goel of Nehem. God remembers the kindnesses of the patriarchs. Okay, some, some, some progressive synagogues want to add the matriarchs, can add the matriarchs too. But at the end of the day, the first blessing is Magain Abraham, shield of Abraham. The first person to pray Aramida is the servant. And not just that, not only does he pray, he even bows down at the end, which of course is what we have, bowing, bow in the beginning and bow at the end. So this, the prayer of the servant actually anticipates Aramida. It's exactly to whom he prays. He prays to the God of Abraham. So we don't know when he holds himself because it's not about himself. There is no himself in the story. He's an avid. He's a perfect He's, facilitator. He is He's a, both of the, trans the transaction, the prayer, and perfect. the uh, every, transportation. I pray every day that this person should come across my path. That's, that's what Drisha needs right now, actually. Someone who gets the vision and makes it all happen, understands how to communicate it, what we're doing and everything like that. The yeshiva in Israel, the high school pro, the works, the kolel, these classes. Someone who understands and communicates it. You have to understand, to understand it is not simple to understand it in a deep way. What is the place really about? And the servant understands. Now we had questions. He asked, he asked Abraham, what about if the woman doesn't want to come back? I'll find a perfect woman, perfect person. Doesn't want to come back to the land. That's his question in the beginning of chapter 24, to which Abraham says, if she doesn't want to come back, she's not the right person. The right person will come, just like me. I want somebody like myself, he says, who's willing to take a leap of faith. Oh, I understand it. Okay, you understand it, now swear, swear. And he swears, and that's it. That's what he's gonna do. But how do you find it? And how do you speak? And how do you negotiate? How do you talk to lover, okay? He's on his own. Abraham never told him what to do. But the servant is a, actually a brilliant negotiator and figures it out. At the end of the day, he brings back the prize, which is Rivka. So he is very successful. But my point is, he's an Evid. That's what he says. Evid, I am your servant, means I'm gonna do what you want me to do. And that's, that, that's what works. Zero, he has zero ego invested in this. That's how the text, whether it's Elias or anybody else, He's the elder of his household. He controls the property, etc. and all that. It is true the midrashim call him Eliezer, but the point of the chumash is dafka. It's not Eliezer. The point of the chumash is dafka has no name. Some other comments or questions? Yes. Um, yes thank you. I just noticed that um, 
a parallel in um, phrasing, and I don't know if there's any significance to it, that in the Akedah, when Abraham sees the Isle, it says, Vaisa Avraham et Enav, and then here it says, Vatisa Rivka et Eneha, et Yitzchak. Right. So is it just a coincidence or does that have significance? I don't think it's just a coincidence. First of all, Vaisa Avraham et Enav appears twice at the Akedah. Mm -hmm. Twice he sees both in it's it's both he sees the place from a distance in verse number four, and secondly, he sees the ram, and the ram, according to our discussion, conversation, interpretation, is, is very central. The ram is the solution to the problem about the contradiction. On one hand, how is Isaac to be sacrificed, as God says? On the other hand, not not sacrificed, answer through this proxy we call a sacrifice. The, the ram is able, so there twice at the Akeva, you have Aisa Ramet Enav in contradistinction to what you have with Hagar in chapter 21, which is God opened her eyes. So there, yes, so I would say that in the case over here, there probably are multiple connections, but one of them I think is an important point about Aisa since you mentioned it, that if you look at those verses at the very end of the story, the contrast is that Isaac goes out to Rosuach Basodeh to converse in the field. There's his Vaisa in Vayar. He lifted up his eyes, right? So he also lifts up his eyes. He sees camels coming. No, he sees camels coming. Maybe he presumes that Rifka's on one of the camels. But it is very striking that what he sees is camels. But she lifts up her eyes and she sees him. And that I think is significant in terms of the ability to perceive, to see. We know later on that Isaac is blind or his eyes are poor, weak, he can't see. And the, in point of fact, when we get there, chapter 27, the question is, does it mean just physically he can't see because he's old, he, you know, his eyes have become dim? Or is there more to it about Isaac not being able to see or to perceive? Mm. He is about to bless Asa, we'll discuss this, but Rivka understands that it can't be Asaph. Now, the way she goes about getting the blessing to Jacob may be highly problematic. That's a separate issue. At the end of the day, let's not forget she's love and sister. However, it doesn't mean she's wrong. So in the idea of perception, the idea of seeing, Rivka is one who sees very clearly. And she sees things far away, just as Abraham did. But in the case of Isaac, he can see far away. Mm -hmm. And if you want to explain why, it's very simple. It's not because there's something wrong with Isaac. It's quite the opposite, not wrong. It's never right and wrong. It's two sides of the same coin. He's never somebody who had to see. He's a protected species from day one. Either his father or God or Rivka, somebody is always watching out for him. So the point is he, he never leaves the land. He has been living in the four cubits. He, he's, he never had to go outside the box. So when you do have to, when you have to confront other kinds of situations, you're not prepared to see. You're living in your little world. It could be a very beautiful world, you know? But you have no idea what's going on outside that world. You can't see. You're, you're, in, you're in a very holy place, but you can't see outside. Whereas Rivka, she's going to seek God. She's a seeker and a searcher. And she takes the, the journeys and she goes into the unknown. 
so she's able to see. So I think that by Yisra and she sees him, whereas he sees camels. Yes, it's true, he's alone and she's with camels. But the Torah is making a point, I think, about Rivka, or it, it's, it's sort of anticipating, or setting up an expectation for the reader about his ability to see, which is problematic. He has to be corrected, whereas Rivka can see. But, the, but it is a very good Akedah like now. Abraham said, I want somebody like, like myself. It's interesting that Yitzchak, we'll get to this later on, but Yitzchak is the successor to Abraham, but we wouldn't say he's like Abraham, even though he imitates Abraham in many ways. But I would say that in terms of, from a personality standpoint, from a character standpoint, Isaac and Abraham are very, very different. Whereas Rivka, who's quite spunky, and she's outgoing and she travels all around the place, she's much, much more reminds us of an Abraham figure in terms of what he does. He's the one who left his home. She's the one who leaves her home. So there's something to that as well. But we get to that chapter uh, next in the next series that we uh, keep going forward, probably after the holidays, because we have other series before that. Uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll be able to raise those questions once again. Thank you for that. Anybody else before we continue? Yeah, Ephron. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Laszlo had his hand up for a while. Sure. Are you there? Do you hear what? us? Uh, Mr. Marcus? Yes. Do you hear us? Can you unmute? I don't hear him. Uh, okay. I'm okay. unmuted. Okay. Uh, you may have touched on this earlier, uh, but what is the purpose of the genealogy that follows the Akeda, the genealogy of uh, Abraham's brothers? Yeah. So I think the purpose of the genealogy, which is there, in other words, it has two purposes. One is to mention Rivka to anticipate Rivka as a central player. But of course, the genealogy could have appeared before chapter 24, when we encounter Rivka, and not before chapter 23. So I did touch on it, I think, here. I've spoken about it many times. I think the purpose of the genealogy is to separate the Akeda from the story that follows. Unlike in the book of Shmuel, where the purchase of the site follows immediately upon uh, David's uh, seeing the place and confessing and all that, and then he purchases that particular place from Aravna. It's one story. Here, they're two different stories. And I think the point of the two stories is to put the Ephraim story, which is a separate piece of land, though it's obviously conceptually linked, but to, to, to the Ephraim story is more like the story that follows in the sense. The parallel is Abraham has a specific need. The need is to acquire a symbolic possession of the land that bears Sarah's name. That's his need. And he's willing to pay whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And the point, if my reading is correct, and I believe it is, that Ephron is a real finagre. Because Ephron knows that. He's going to squeeze out of Abraham as much money as he can. Abraham just wanted to buy a grave at the corner of his field. Ephron says, in effect, if you want a grave, mister, I know you want to pay for the grave. Let me tell you something. The grave's in the field. Abraham could have said, the grave's not in the field. The grave's at the edge of the field. You can separate them. But say so, Dale. He doesn't say that. Oh, if the grave comes with the field, I'll buy the field. How much is the field? Between me and you, it's not much. It's, the grave's $5,000. The uh, field's $87 million. Is that, is that a problem between me and you? No problem. It's 87 million and it's a bank check too, he says. Can, no problem. 
cash on, on the spot. It's all in cash. No more, nothing. Cash. And that's that story. The next story is the same thing. In other words, Ephron is a neighbor. And that's the world. And the point is, the very next story is Laban. And, he, and, and the servant has 10 camels filled with all the goods of his man. The other was a blank check. And at the end of it, they still don't want to let it go. And he has all kinds of gifts and this and that. And with the negotiation and the sweet talk and the threats and this and the money, you manage to convince Laban and the others to let her go. And that's the, that's the real world. So the point is that what the genealogy does is separate the Ephron story in Shmuel, the purchase and the place are, are all the same. Because Aravna is not a faker. He's a Yerusi, yes. He may be frightened, yes. But, he, but not, there's no evidence that he's a phony. On the contrary, take it for nothing and may God, he says, may, may God bless you too. I hope God accepts your sacrifice. He's probably also suffering, who knows? People dying all around, who knows? But the fact is, there's no intimation in Shmuel that Aravna is a phony. So it follows one upon the next. Over here, the genealogy, yes, it does set up Rivka, but why after 22, which is set up after chapter 23? So my suggestion was, because if you have the, the break is between the Akeda and Ephron Lavan. That the Ephron Lavan is, how do you deal with Ephron? Ephron Abraham deals with, which is pay whatever he wants because he doesn't care, because it's worth infinite money securing the covenantal blessing and, and, and acknowledging Sarah's role. He doesn't care what it costs. And the same thing with Lavan, whatever it takes to get Rifka, you blank check. In the book of Shmuel, it's different. That was what I suggested last time, I believe. Anyway, okay. Yes, uh, Shomo, uh, Shmuel, go ahead. Attendant to, uh, to, um, to the Ephron story, um, it's not possible to miss that Ephron is Abraham. Anochi offer ve'efer. Right. He is Abraham on one hand, and I'm, I'm, the, the name Ephron itself, I presume, has something to do with, I still have to think more about Ephron. I, I, when I said about Ephron, I think it's right. But the name Ephron is very interesting with Ophar, for sure. Um, also, 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 you have any, anything, about, I'm, I'm sorry, just cut you off, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, speak. Oh, oh, do you have any, anything about, about why it is that Abraham is, Abraham, I mean, it, it seems obvious why Abraham is avoiding wanting to take a large possession of a field, um, you know, get the neighbors jealous, get them curious about what you're, what you're thinking in terms of possession. Okay, so he's minimizing what he's buying. But so why is it that Yaakov saunters into Eretz Israel and he buys something? Right, I don't know why I did, look, here's the point, at the end of the day, as I had mentioned earlier, the fact that he gets a field is very significant. He may have thought, actually, that no one's going to want to sell him a field. You know, it's, it's exactly even the, even the grave. You know, they they say to him, "We'll give you the grave. We'll give you the grave." Is very nice on one end, but he doesn't want them to give a grave because psychologically, when you give somebody something, you could think psychologically, still I'm still connected to it. If the other person pays full price, that's another story. So it could be that Abraham was willing to forego the field just because he felt maybe I'll get nothing. And this way I want to get the main thing I want is the, is the, is the Achuzat Kever. However, and maybe, maybe Yaakov is a different relationship. I really don't know the answer. Um, but uh, he also, uh, the land which he buys, it's interesting that he buys is, he comes to Shechem, but it says, and I wonder about that, whether he's actually buying it inside Shechem 
or whether he's buying it adjoining to Shemis, I don't know. Kind of say so I don't know. Maybe when we get there, we'll talk about it some more. But that's uh, but those parallels, I think, are clear. The two different purchases, purchase and conquest, which come together in the Abraham and Yaakov stories, and with David, with Yerushalayim, it's both conquest. And, okay, I have only two three minutes here, so let me just uh, let me just say what I'd like to how we will continue over here. So next next Sunday's Tisha B'Av, we have a whole Tisha B'Av program. I'm also speaking for briefly on Tisha B'Av in the afternoon, and I think an hour. Um, and then we will resume uh, before the Chagim. This year, all the holidays are in September, or in the middle of a very difficult schedule. We'll have a program. And then we'll, I'd like to focus more on, on, the, on the holidays. We'll figure maybe the biblical text related to the holidays. And right afterwards in October, we will resume. We'll continue with um, Yitzchak, and then we will also continue with, with, with Yaakov. Stuff is incredibly interesting. In addition, there's something else I want to mention, which is I'm hoping to give a whole set of classes on, uh, on, uh, on prayer. Prayer and its biblical intertext, and if possible, uh, in these sessions, to introduce some, some musical element as well. I will have to see if I can do it at this point, but it's something I'm working on now, a new project. Uh, prayer and music, which should be hopefully interesting, but it's somewhere down the road. So that's that's the plan for the for the for the future. So again, this week we'll um, next Sunday is Tisha B'av, um, and we will uh, we will uh, have a Tisha B'av program. We have we have another two minutes, so let me just take two more minutes and say something. I don't want to stop two minutes early. So chapter twenty four. Chapter 24, Abraham calls in his servant. I'll say one thing. Since chapter 24 begins with the phrase, with the pasuk, the Abraham Zarkein Babayamim, Bashem Beirachat Abraham Bakol. That's how chapter 24 starts. Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and God blessed Abraham with everything, Bakol. He's got everything, Bakol. What he doesn't have yet, of course, is a guarantee of how succession will work, and that's his servant, and that's the story. And one gets a sense in chapter 24 that Abraham is completely in charge. He may be very old, he's who knows how old, but it doesn't matter. Somehow he's in control through the servant. He gives the servant a lot of leeway, but he gives the servant very clear instructions. The servant prays to the God of Abraham. Is a sense which Abraham is fully in control. The parallel verse to Abraham's Akein Yamim is found in the first verse of the book of Mulachim. What we had looked at was the last chapter of Shmuel, the parallel to the Akedah, and then the parallel to purchase of Maratha Machpelah. But the next verse, Akedah is 22, Machpelah is 23. Chapter 24 is Abraham's Akein Baba Yamim, Hashem Berachat Abraham Bakol. And the parallel verse in chapter one of Kings, which is the next chapter, probably the same author, I would add. Vamelch David Zakein Baba Yamim, Vayichasu Bab Godim so given what we saw about the parallels between 22 and 23 in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, and the first verse of Kings is parallel over here, that of course opens up the window and obligates us to read the entire story of the succession of kingship, which is chapters one and two of Kings, in conjunction with parallel to and in contrast to the story of the other succession stories, which are the patriarchy the passing down of blessing from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, etc. The intervention of the women who understand it and all that, the way succession works, and 
That's what we'll be looking at next time. Chapter 24 in and of itself, but also the fascinating parallels to the succession of the patriarchy, which is chapter 24, and the succession of the kingship. I would say that chapters one and two of Kings are a very dark story. That's not true of the story over here. These stories have a very, especially this chapter, and Ephron too, relative to other parts of the Torah and the Bible, is a very sunny story. It's one of those feel-good stories. It all works out very well at the end. There's always difficulties, but it's a very feel-good story. At the end, Isaac and Rebecca have been chosen as the second generation of patriarch and matriarch. The kingship is a very, very different story, but the stories have an incredible number of parallels between them. How the author of Malachim, who's probably the same author as Shmuel, how the author presents the story there in contrast to the story of the Chumash, that's our initial, uh, that's our uh, first challenge to try to work all that out. Anyway, thank you all for your participation. It's been great to learn Torah with you, as always.